wind up Mark chapter 3 this morning, unless the Lord returns and interrupts that, which would be just fine with me. For a number of reasons. We're in the Gospel of Mark. And the Gospel wasn't written to be an expose on social interaction in a diverse culture. But it is, and I trust that even thus far it's been instructive to note the manner in which Jesus communicated certain things in certain ways to certain audiences. The last time that we were together, Jesus leveled the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, once again making a mockery of their accusation that Jesus did the things he did, like healing the sick and casting out demons by the power of Satan himself. If you haven't noticed, sometimes Jesus gives pretty snarky answers to people who are insincere in their questioning or who ask questions only in an attempt to trap him or to trip him up, perhaps thinking he's in a weak moment or some such thing. But in this particular exchange in Mark 3, where these leaders who, remember, carry a great deal of theological as well as social influence with the crowds who were listening to Jesus, their accusation is a foolish attempt to make Jesus into someone evil. Today we often hear the phrase, especially during election times, about they're demonizing him. Well, it means they're trying to remove, in this case, Jesus' influence by attacking his character, by attacking his person, because they don't stand a chance if they actually try to confront his ideas or the subject matter in the situation. But here, the Pharisees are literally trying to demonize Jesus. As I mentioned in previous messages Jesus is not thinking that he's going to sway these wayward leaders to come to a place of grasping the truth. But rather, he knows that there are people in the crowd who are truly watching and who are truly listening to him, trying to figure out who this miracle-working prophet really is. The Pharisees don't ever quite learn that it's not smart to try and outsmart God. In summary, then, Jesus rarely lays someone out just because he can. In our age of social media, it's good to remember that. Now, I've got to tell you that what I just, right to this point here, was as far as I got on Wednesday morning. And the point that I got to just now was probably for me more than for anyone else. Because Wednesday afternoon I received word, that one of the people, if you were at the 4th of July parade and you happened to see the, the uh, people wearing the Huggin' Atheist t-shirts, um, apparently one of them, the leader of the group, made a comment on the church's Facebook page. And so I was apprised of it, and I was asked if I wanted to be the one to make the reply. And I said, yes. And I purposely let it sit for a good day because I know me and that carnal fleshly side of me takes delight in leveling someone just for the sheer joy of it and that is not Christ-like 
It really isn't. Jesus doesn't hesitate to level people, as we've seen with the Pharisees in particular. But he doesn't take joy in it in the way my carnal flesh does. And I said, okay, put this one aside. You're going to pray about this. And then even after I wrote my reply, I didn't send it. I waited, reread it, had a couple of people read it, and then I sent it. Had I not been to where I was in this message, I'm not sure that that would have been the pattern that I followed. When Jesus humiliates someone, for example, think about cleansing the temple of the money changers, or in the way that he does at length in Matthew chapter 23. It's not with a view toward striking back. It's not with a view toward revenge. But Jesus' responses in any situation, while varied, are always with a view towards kingdom purposes, knowing that in the midst of the unbelieving, scoffing, accusing multitudes, there are inquisitive eyes watching and open ears listening. When interacting with the world around him, Jesus' two guiding principles seem to be, first, from the wisdom of Solomon, Proverbs 26, 5, answer a fool as his folly deserves that he be not wise in his own eyes. Then, two, from the wisdom of the inspired the Apostle Paul, from Ephesians 4.29, let no unwholesome word proceed forth out of your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification to meet the need at the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. I hope that I followed those two principles in my replies, which ended up being multiple because there was a reply back and then my reply. I hope they followed those principles but I would say from what the replies were, they failed at least from the perspective of the one reading who felt taunted by some of our float people who were marching in the parade as well. But her criticisms went beyond feeling just taunted to how we spend our money on self-promotion. Well, we're in verse 31 of Mark 3. Stop me if you've heard this one. Mark abruptly moves to yet another vignette that is yet again startling. It's brief, but it is poignant. The word with the G in it. It's not poignant. It's poignant. My wife has never been pregnant. She's pregnant. Don't confuse those two. Yes. It's brief, but it is poignant. And coincidentally, it was Luke's version of the same thing that Mark was commenting on here, which I used for my very first ever wedding, which happened to be in a Catholic church. Now, this was before I was a, formally a pastor. It was when we were back still in Chicago. And I'd been doing pre-marriage counseling as a favor to a couple with whom the young man was attending the same church that we uh, were attending at the time, um, a free church in Chicago. However, his fiance was Catholic, and they were to be married in the Catholic church. So this bride-to-be approached her priest and asked the priest if I might be able to participate in the ceremony. And I was surprised 
when he welcomed my participation. The priest did stipulate that he would have to perform the sacerdotal obligations. There's a good word for you. That means all those formal uh, religious priestly things like the vows and the sacraments of marriage and the pronouncement of marriage. And I certainly expected that, and I certainly understood that, and frankly, I would probably require the same thing. But he said that he would be happy to let me do the homily. The homily is the little kind of message, pithy thing, you know, that the pastor is supposed to give uh, at a wedding and make everybody feel good and whatever it is. There's all different ways of looking at that and what the purpose of it is. So now here I am with this situation of going into the Catholic Church. I'm going to be there participating in this wedding and all that that means, what to do, what to do with the opportunity. Well, as I have done with all weddings since that day, I've always tried to tailor my homily to a particular need that may have been discovered through my pre-marriage time, my pre-marriage counseling with the couple. In this case, I decided that given what I had learned during counseling concerning the bride's mother being a bit overbearing, a bit obtrusive, and inappropriately clingy, I thought about the need that exists once married for there to be a change in the relationships within the brides and, of course, the grooms' families that a healthy marriage necessarily brings. One of the things that I routinely discuss with all prospective new couples is the biblical command for the bride and the groom to leave their mother and father and what that means and to cleave to one another and what that means. Immediately, what came to mind was the profound change in relationship that we see take place in one of the very closest relationships that Jesus had on earth, that being his own relationship to his dear mother Mary. Let's pick up where we left off then in Mark chapter 3, verse 31. Jesus is still with the crowds. He's still with his hand-picked 12, preparing them to send them out, to launch them into ministry, when some commotion erupts as Mother Mary and Jesus' brothers drop in from out of town. Let's read verse 31 and 32. Then his mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him, and they called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Many of you here, including my wife and I, were raised under the traditions of Catholicism, where the veneration of Mary looms quite large in the theology as well as the practices of Catholic traditions. Being married in the Catholic Church, as I was, I had every aspiration of joining the Catholic Church. But in my brief meetings with the priest, I had sincere, honest questions concerning the prominence of Jesus' mother in certain beliefs and rituals. It seemed that as a Catholic, I would have a special special kind of in, if you will now, with Jesus, thanks to Mary. I was informed on more than one occasion 
that one of the reasons for praying to Mary was that being the mother of God, her son wouldn't refuse her anything. Now, in fairness, that is probably just a very informal and less than precise interpretation of official Catholic doctrine on the subject. But when you consult Catholic websites explaining these kinds of issues, particularly to non-Catholics, it does seem to be a fair representation in thinking about the role that Mary plays. From a website called catholicdoors.com, we accept the fact that Mary is the most successful saint at obtaining divine favors through her intercession. One can understand then that a more pithy or homey or informal interpretation being Jesus does what mom asks him to do is kind of reasonable. So the day of my first wedding arrives and there I am. The Protestant, not even pastor, but pastor wannabe, standing in a Catholic church in a very formal setting explaining the idea of the need for a God-designed change in relationship with one's parents brought on by a change in one's situation or station in life, meaning now husband and wife. And so I used this moment in Mark, again, although Luke's rendering of it, when Mother Mary arrives wanting to see her son. But the story doesn't proceed the way one might expect. Mother Mary is there. She's just come in from out of town. She's traveled a good way. She's tired, and she's his mother, and she wants to see Jesus. So Jesus is informed that his mother and brothers have arrived and want to see him. But Jesus doesn't drop what he's doing to see what his mother wants. He doesn't pause his lectures to go and greet his family. He doesn't stop to rearrange the seating making uh, because the room, as you remember, was completely overrun with people and crowded and packed. He doesn't stop to set things up so that his mother and his brothers can come on in and have room. Instead, he says something that could easily be interpreted as making a statement about Mary's position where her son is now concerned. Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Verse 33, forward. Answering them, Jesus says, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who were sitting around him, Jesus said, Behold, my mother, my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother, my sister, and mother. In my inaugural wedding homily, I explained that the special relationship between a woman and her mother will always be special. The bride doesn't stop being a daughter and the mother doesn't stop being a mother. But the daily outworkings of that, the daily playing forth of that special relationship must of necessity change when the will of God decrees that it change for the sake of his purposes and his plans for that bride and her new family. The daughter, you see, now a wife, 
has different priorities. She has now God-ordained priorities. And to honor the Lord in worshipful obedience, she must see that her husband rises above the place of subjection, influence, and priority of even her mother. In the new relationship of man and wife, the two shall leave mother and father and they shall cleave to one another. That's not merely a good thing. It's a holy thing. When Mary shows up in Mark 3, Jesus has a different reaction to her than he did when he was 12 years old. And he'd gone missing for three days when they find him in the synagogue teaching the teachers. You might remember the passage. We find it in Luke chapter 2, verses 48 and 49, at least Mary's response to him. Remember now they realize that Jesus has gone missing and he wasn't with relatives as they thought. Mary responds very understandably as his mother. Verse 48, Luke 2, his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And Jesus, age 12, said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Even at age 12, Jesus makes clear that while he is for the time Mary's little lamb, he was the world's sacrificial lamb. But for now, he would submit to her motherliness over him, even as the text says. Verse 51, And he went down with them, and he came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them, and his mother treasured all things in her heart. Well, in Mark now, Mary's little boy has come into his own to fulfill God's plan of redemption. And although Mary, to be sure, was blessed by God in a unique way, used by God to bring the very Savior into this world, Mary also had to realize that while Jesus was her earthborn son, Jesus was nonetheless Mary's creator, Mary's savior, and Mary's Lord. For Mary, like every other human being born of an earthly man and woman, was a sinner saved by grace through faith, despite what Catholicism teaches. The prophet Isaiah says, All we like sheep, not every one but one, All we like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity that was ours to be fallen upon him. In Romans 3.23, Paul writes, All, not all but one, but all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Mary, like all believers through history, belonged to God, coming at God's beck and call, never to be the other way around, which rather tends to dismantle any notion that Mary has special clout by virtue of being the earthly mother of Jesus. So there I am, naive, wet behind the ears, and I'm nervous, wondering how this was received by the very elderly, very old school priest. 
people were still in, in just barely even starting to move and get out of their seats and to leave the church. And Father, I can't remember his name, it's too, way too many years ago, comes ambling over to me, and I thought, oh, here it comes. And he says to me something to the effect of, well, that was interesting. And it seemed like the way he said it was a good thing, which I couldn't believe. But then he said, and this isn't words to that effect, this is what he said, would you mind if I used that sometime? I don't know what my facial expression was, but I went, okay. (laughs) Well, all of that, what I just said, is all well and good, but that is not the primary intention, obviously, of why Mark and Luke included this vignette in their Gospels. It was just sort of a little sidebar, knowing the traditions of many of us in here. So why is it recorded? Remember who Jesus is speaking to. Yes, he's speaking to, to a small multitude. He's speaking to the crowd. But he's also there preparing the twelve to go. And turning one's self over to Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life is not always favorably received within one's own household. Some of you have experienced this in some low-level ways of awkwardness that I talked about a couple of weeks ago, maybe biting comments at worst. But there are many, many former Muslims who have experienced this and are experiencing this in an ultimate way, being handed over for imprisonment, for beatings, for execution by their own fathers, mothers, brothers, uncles. Turning to the Savior of mankind may mean losing your closest earthly relationships. And he's basically asking, are you ready for that? Do you really count the cost? Mark will tell us later that family members will turn on their kin, turning them over to the godless of the nation. Looking about at those who were sitting around him, verse 34, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And Jesus' point is that when you join yourself to Jesus as Lord and Savior, you become part of his family, and his family is tighter, and it is closer, and it is stronger than even biological connections that any human being can have, or at least it's supposed to be. Blood may be thicker than water, as the adage goes, but it's not thicker than the shed blood of Jesus that joins every follower of Christ to himself and to one another. Well, what does this mean in practical terms? Jesus says some tough things. He who loves, Matthew 10:37, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me 
is not worthy of me. Over the years, I've noticed time and again, unfortunately, a prevalent parental presumption that their children will or should or must remain in the relative immediate locale in which the parents are living. Obviously, this isn't an across-the-board kind of generalization, but I have definitely witnessed firsthand, even heard firsthand, a palpable cultural expectation that children will stay in the same community in which they were raised, and when children are added to the children of the parents, meaning grandchildren especially, that expectation can become a demand. Now, there's nothing wrong with children choosing to stay in their hometown community if that is where the Lord Jesus Christ wants them to be. But it doesn't seem that Christian parents are by design instilling in their children the vision that God wants them also to be a part of his great commission as well. And the great commission begins with go. I've had to talk a few parents down off ledges, if I could use that phrase, because their child was talking of gasp and horrors of death going to school out of state. (laughs) Or worse, to the mission field. We'll never see our grandchildren. And hey, by the way, if you don't think Barbara and I can relate. You haven't been paying attention. Schools for our children were 1,100 miles away and 3,200 miles away, and they never returned home after that. Hey. What? No, another message. Well, then they got married. And for the first, I don't know how many years it was, our three children lived 1,300 miles away, 1,600 miles away, and 3,200 miles away. And then we struck pay dirt when when, uh, Ginny, our oldest daughter, moved to what felt like our backyard, moving to Boston. Woo-hoo! To each one, when they asked... If they asked concerning their their ideas and their thoughts and their dreams of where to go to school and where to live and where to relocate or if they should relocate and all of that, our reply was always the same. You have to be where the Lord wants you to be, not where we want you to be or even where you want to be. When Barbara and I received out of absolutely the blue, we were living in Atlanta, fairly young Christians, five years old or so in the Lord with a very intimate, very awesome, outstanding uh, church that in a lot of ways made us who we are as parents, as husbands and wives, and who would know as a future minister and all of that. We did not want to go to Seattle from the first moment we heard of it. Even from the second and third moment, 
I told the Lord, Lord, I, I like it. I, we love it where we are. We're in a community. We're being school. We're being mentored. We're all I did, but we knew we were supposed to be in Seattle. Oh, I hate that. So where'd we go? Florida. No, <laughs> just kidding. Seeing if you're still with me. No, we went to Seattle. But I don't want to give the impression here that geographical locale is the only or even the main avenue in which Jesus' words play out concerning this. Over the years, I have noticed a family here and there who were coming to church very regularly. I would call them even integrated for quite some time. But then grandchildren came on the scene. And then another grandchild, and then another grandchild. And I haven't seen them since. And it's been several years. Is that why they're not here? Well, I really don't know. But you know, one of the upsides or downsides of Facebook, depending on your perspective, is that you see all of what's going on in people's lives that you know because they tell you everything. Sometimes too many things, but it's there. It is too well known broadly in the church that wears the name of Christ in North America that there are times when incessant events and extracurricular activities and family obligations remove families from the collective worship and service of the Lord Almighty so routinely that their usefulness to the Lord who made them to be useful for his kingdom purposes has been absolutely dead-ended by family-centered prerogatives rather than Christ-centered priorities. can't say amen just say ouch for whoever does the will of God he is my brother my sister and my mother and if you are part of my family Jesus is making the point then you belong to me for I bought you In the words of Paul, I purchased you. Your life is not your own. Boy, if there is anything that strikes at one of the core values of this culture, it is that, hey, my life is my life. For those out there, absolutely, yeah, whatever. But for the person who says, I am a Christ follower. Your life is not your life, for you have been bought with the blood of Jesus. And we exist for his purposes, whether we like those purposes or not. He's getting ready to send the 12 out. A little reality check. Oh, my. He wants people to count the cost. I get so sick of this this mindset of easy believism that is rampant, not just in North America, but globally. It is one of, certainly not the, but one of the foundational tenets of the whole prosperity gospel. 
Wear Jesus is a good luck charm. Wear the cross as a, a talisman, something with spiritual power that protects you from anything good and evil because God exists to give you what you want in your life because that's what a loving father does. And there's just enough truth in it to grab people's attention and to grab their hearts. And it is not coincidental that the fastest growing churches in the world seem to have that same foundation as the foundation. Think about those Muslims in Kosovo. Now, Kosovo, you have to understand, if you've not been around to hear the Valentines in their trips going over there before they were living there and all, it is a nominally Muslim community, nation, state, whatever you want to call it, which, meaning, which means it, it's, it's quite liberal with respect to the freedoms and the privileges that, that Christian, non-Kosovar Christians have and all of that. But these people are still paying a price. Because even though there's that nominal belief system of Islam, it's much like at least what we experienced early on in our marriage. My dear grandmother-in-law, a lifelong Catholic, who truly I don't believe had been to church in 50 years, but she was Catholic by Gari. And when she learned that Barb... And I had left the Catholic Church. We were visiting them in Ocala, and she took and went and locked herself in her bedroom for many hours and would not speak to us. And that's the way it is in Kosovo with many of the Muslims. They will pay a price. But the day is coming oh so quickly when we will be paying a price, and many in this country already are, or at least some in this country already are. If you're familiar with the Oregon Bakers, Bakers by, not by family name, the Bakers, the, the people baking wedding cakes and all of that. You know that story. So are you truly part of Christ's family? Are you part of Jesus' family? Is his blood that was shed for you thicker than the blood even of your own children? And later in the Gospels, it gets even more pointed, even more than your own blood. He says, take up your cross daily and follow me. Let me have you stand. speaking of baptism what I just said is all contained in that powerful ritual of baptism you are saying yes to all of that Father in heaven we pray that you would deepen and strengthen our faith we pray that you would give us Lord feet of iron that has been blessed by you and not of clay 
that when the time comes, not if, but when, we will not shrink back. We will not strike forth in vengeance. But we will be your salt and your light in a very dark world to the glory and praise of your name. 